0: I kind of approach my business as in how do I cash flow all of the work that I want to do? What do I find most exciting? What do I find most interesting? What am I most excited about? And how can I get all of these different elements of my business to basically cash flow my dreams so I can do whatever it is that I really want to do creatively?
1: Welcome to the North Star Unplugged Podcast, Brought to you from Bozeman, Montana. Your host is Kristen Rainey, the founder and CEO of North Star Sleep School, providing online and in-person sleep courses to help you get better rest. The North Star Unplugged podcast is about rest and rejuvenation, and it's also about unplugging from technology, transitions and transformations, and spending time and energy on the things that really matter which are different for all of us. You can find the audio version of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Finally, you can also see all prior episodes on the North Star Sleep School website at www.northstarsleepschool.com.
2: Hello, everyone. This is Kristen Rainey. Welcome back to North Star Unplugged. Today, I'm here with Jillian Johnsrud. After becoming financially independent at 32 years old, Jillian turned her personal and professional experience towards a creative life. She's a popular public speaker, coach, writer, and teaches online classes. Her book, Fire the Haters, Finding the Courage to Create Online in a Critical World, helps creatives and entrepreneurs share their best work with the world. She hosts the Everyday Courage podcast, She and her husband live in Montana, near Glacier National Park, with their five kids and a dog named Cheesy Taco. She's an avid traveler and drinker of hot tea. Jillian, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. So you reached financial independence at 32. Congrats. We've had a number of other leaders in the financial independence movement on the show, from Alan Donegan to Christian Bryce, J.L. Collins, and most recently, Carl Jensen. Jillian, when you and your husband were married, you were buried in $55,000 in credit cards, student loans, and medical debt. Will you share your journey of how you and your husband went from there to financial independence? That first year of marriage, it was kind of a
0: a difficult... (laughs) Uh, realization of how much debt we had together. And I had always wanted just more freedom and more options and I felt like I'd had growing up. So getting good with money was like a top priority. So we started aggressively paying that down as much as we could. And, and honestly, just being very kind of open-minded to what is going to be the quickest way out of this because neither of us had chosen like high earning career fields. So we were saving 50%, but the first year we only made like $12,000. So still going to take a very long time to pay off that debt. So my husband ended up joining the military, which helped secure $35,000 of his student loan debt. And that kind of like Got the ball rolling, and then between, um, yeah, just saving while he was away at basic and AIT, and we were able to pay off the credit card debt, which was about ten thousand, and then we just had my medical debt of ten thousand. That so we were able to pay it all off within probably two, two,
1: three years.
2: And in your podcast, Everyday Courage, you refer to yourself as the saver and your husband as the spender. How do you resolve that tension? I
0: think it's really come down and over the years we've gotten better and better at this but just understanding what matters to each of us, understanding why these things are important and what these things mean. And honestly the more that we've we've talked about kind of our childhoods and how we grew up and those early experiences with money and those early ideas about money, the more empathy that we have for each other and just the more self-awareness of like, oh, this is why uh, I have big reactions about that. <laughs> this is why I feel very passionately about this. Like, This is why I perceive when you do that, I think it means this. And being able to talk about that more outside of just the budgets and the dollars in a sense has been enormously helpful because then we can actually get on the same page because we understand where the other one's coming from.
2: A lot of the other folks in the financial independence movement are big fans of index funds. What's your approach to investing and saving?
0: Yeah, we keep it really simple. We use a target date fund made up of index funds. It's kind of a a 90-10, but it's nice because it rebalances itself and I never have to go in there and pull any dials or levers. It just kind of keeps on on tracking. My word of advice with target tape funds though is that to pay attention to what's actually inside them. Cause they're all named based on the date that you would assume to retire. So like it's the 2045 or you know the 2050 fund but actually open it up and see what is the percentage? How does that percentage get more conservative over time? And then instead of going based on this kind of arbitrary number, the date that they've put on the outside, pick the one that actually represents the mix that works best for you now
2: and kind of in the future. And is your target 2040, even though, of course, you have already retired because you wanted a higher risk fund?
0: Yeah, exactly. So we keep ours further out there between like the 2040 to 2050, even though technically it could be 2020. That mix isn't close enough to our allocation.
2: And I'd love to point out to listeners that, of course, you're hardly sitting on a beach with an umbrella cocktail, which I think is the picture that many people have of what early retirement would be. And in fact, in my limited interactions with you so far, I, you know, you seem to work quite a lot. You have a podcast, Everyday Courage. You have retreats you're leading. You have an online courses that you teach. You do one-on-one coaching. And now you have a new book, which we're going to talk about today. How do you divide your time and energy right now among all those various pursuits? And how has that allocation changed over the past few years, if at all?
0: Once we stepped away from our nine-to-five jobs, and it's been six years now, it's kind of been a learning curve of figuring out what do we really enjoy, what adds some nice structure to our lives, like what is flexible enough. And every year, we kind of experiment with it. And every year, we we go, yeah, we kind of like this. You know, this summer we've gotten in the habit of going away every weekend to go camping or go to a theme park or something. And I'm like, yeah, this feels pretty good. Like I like being in Montana in the summer. I like being outdoors. We usually do like a morning adventure most mornings where we go like out for just to, to a park or a small hike with our kids and so you kind of figure out what that rhythm is. I think this year we're going to do probably 12 weeks during the winter. And we're going to go someplace warmer, sunnier, Montana, cuz I don't love being here for the 7-month winter. Really 2 months of winter and I'm good. Like I've had my I've had my fill. So it's kind of constantly experimenting with that balance. And right now I do probably about 2 or 3 hours of what could be labeled as work whether I'm writing or I'm coaching or I'm figuring out, you know, a course or an event about 2 to 3 hours a day and I find most people, and maybe there's a bias among my clients, but most people even in the five space when I have them write out their ideal day, they usually have 3 to 4 hours of some sort of work or project or something that they feel like they can see some tangible results and they can see progress and they feel useful. Three to four hours seems to be, I don't know, just kind of that baseline of gives us enough time for meals and family and adventure and fun and rest. But it adds a nice little chunk in the day where we're like, oh, we did something and we feel good about
2: that. So I'd love to hear a little more about that ideal day. So for you, it involves um, an outdoor adventure, hiking with your kids, and then it involves a few hours of work. What else is included in that ideal day? We try to work out five days a week. We go to the gym. We
0: do early dinner with our kiddos. And yeah, for us, we have five kids. So it's a lot of just like it's just a lot of family stuff, you know, it's a lot of cleaning and getting them to fold their laundry and trying to get everyone bathed and just all of that. Having them play outside. My parents live nearby, so we like to be able to visit them. The kids have friends over all the time. We're always that house in the neighborhood that kids are coming in the door all day long. And so, yeah, in the mornings, we like to do a little bit of reading They tend to be pretty consistent to some degree, despite the chaos. Uh, We moved into one of our rental houses. So for the last 12 months, we've been renovating. So that's kind of like the back hum of our life right now is there's usually a renovation project that could use an hour or
2: two of (laughs) moving further along. Right. It's the project with a half-life. I can appreciate that. I know you have an online course called the One Hour Millionaire course. What's that course about and who is it for?
0: The One Hour Millionaire is kind of a container to help people sort through their entire financial plan in an hour a month. You know, oftentimes when people want to be more organized with their money, they want to be more intentional with it. It's like, that's great, but like, what do I actually do? When I sit down to like be good with my money, like what does that involve? And so this kind of takes people step by step through the journey of figuring out from what their budget should be, what their emergency fund should be, their investing amounts, and at the end you come up with this one-hour plan that you can sit down and go through. Okay, I've tracked my spending. I've looked at my savings. I've allocated it according to my plan. I've made adjustments, and you
2: know that you've kind of ticked all the boxes. And do your in-person retreats run the same themes or are they slightly different?
0: No, I would say in person, it tends to lean a little bit more towards intentional living and financial independence as a broader concept. So this year, like uh, one of our speakers was going to talk about the challenge of transitions. Inherently, with financial independence, we usually pursue it because we want to make changes in our life, but changes are difficult. So how do we navigate those changes? Um, so things like that. Sometimes I do kind of business creative focused ones, which are fun. And then other times I do
2: kind of fi intentional living ones. And what's the experience like trying to plan an in-person retreat? next month with all the uncertainties around COVID.
0: Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, I'm never doing that again. (laughs) (laughs) I would put that on the do not recommend list of things. (laughs) Try to plan a large event during a pandemic. Do not recommend. I will definitely be postponing all
2: future events until this is a distant memory. Yeah, understood. I'd love to talk a little bit about real estate. How did you manage to pay cash for your first home? We had saved for 10 years for it. We had just rented for a really long
0: time. And part of that was circumstance. When my husband joined the military, we were stationed in the DC area, and it was extremely expensive. And it was right during like the housing boom where every month houses were $20,000 more expensive than they were the month before. And so we had been aggressively saving, especially after we paid off our debt, but it just felt like there's no way we can save faster than houses are going up. And I just felt really uncomfortable with the whole situation, which was probably some good intuition because it crashed hard there when it crashed. But then my husband, we got assigned to Heidelberg, Germany. So we went and moved to Germany for four and a half years. And I wasn't going to buy a house in Germany. And I wasn't really keen on buying a house long distance. So we were just renting for another four and a half years and continuing to save but between all of that saving you know we came back to the US with about right about 150 two hundred thousand and I'd always wanted to pay cash for a house it didn't really seem a su- like a super realistic goal although with 150 200 in kind of the time It probably would have been, but our timing ended up being pretty good in that we came back in 2012. So the housing market had crashed about 2008 and we were at the very tail end where prices were recovering, but there were a lot of houses that needed a lot of work because they had sat empty during foreclosure and investors were a little bit more tapped out. At this end of this four-year stretch. So there was still a fair amount of competition, but nothing like, like there is today. So we ended up scooping up our first house, which it had an offer on it, but the basement had filled with black mold and the buyer backed out. They dropped the price really quick and we put down cash after like, I think we spent 45 minutes in the house. And we did like a no contingency. We'll just take whatever pile of crap you have here and we'll give you this
2: cash. And they were like, cool, that works. So that's when you moved back to Montana. Yeah. 2012, we came back. And you've also invested in rental properties. And you mentioned earlier that you're currently living in one of your rental properties. How many rental properties do you have now? And did you just sell your main house or are you renting the main house out? Yeah. We rented
0: out our primary residence. So we bought what we like to call the yellow house probably four months after we bought our main, our primary residence. It was another foreclosure, uh, another one that needed a tremendous amount of work. And we were able to put 50% down on that one um, and get a little tiny loan to cover the rest of it. And then we waited a couple of years. Uh, We did a cash out refi on our first house after we got it mostly renovated and purchased the home that we live in currently. And we refer to this house as the big house because it was much bigger than our primary residence. And we rented it for five years, I guess, five years, six years with the understanding that at some point our five kids would be bigger and we would probably want a bigger house, but it made more financial sense to rent it for those years than to live in it so we rented it out and then last summer we were like yeah, it's time to make a switch partly inspired by the pandemic with all of my kids home and in our first house, I had a little nook off the kitchen but it didn't have a door and it was the e- exit into our backyard and so <laughs> I would try to work. It was just like, it was like constant traffic. It was like an animal crossing right through my workspace. And I was like, yeah, maybe it's time to have an office with a door. And
2: have your renters over the years been long-term renters or short-term renters? Yeah,
0: long-term renters. When we started buying rentals, you know, our kiddos were really young and I just, I didn't have the mental or emotional bandwidth to turn over a house frequently and to constantly be looking for renters and kind of dealing with short-term renters. So we intentionally picked homes that we knew would be good for long-term renters. Bigger homes, homes with lots of storage, homes with a garage space, basically homes that are really hard to move out of in a day. Where if you get like a studio apartment and you can just pack that stuff up in a couple hours, throw it in the back of the truck, and like you're gone. So it's really easy to switch apartments. Uh, when you have studio apartments, when you have like a three or four bedroom house with a garage, usually those people are more settled.
2: And these rental properties are nearby your primary residence, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And so at this point, many years later, are your mortgages paid off or do you still have some mortgage debt?
0: No, we actually did a second cash out refi on our primary residence and use that money to do the renovation on the house that we're currently living in. So I think we pulled another 50 or $80,000 out of that house. The yellow house still has a very small mortgage. So between the two of them, even with that one larger mortgage, they cash flow about 1500 a month, which makes up a good chunk of our passive
2: income I know you've taken a number of mini retirements over the years. What in your mind is a mini retirement and where have you gone so far? I define mini
0: retirement is any time that you step away from the 9 to 5 for a month or longer to pursue something that matters to you. It's an interesting amount of time because it's not quite like a long vacation. After a month, you kind of get out of vacation mode. You're either in travel mode or you're like kind of off doing your thing mode. You're not like checking work email and thinking about, okay, I've only got four more days until I go back to the office. And we've done a lot of different things. You know, two of them uh, we pursued buying and renovating these rentals. So, two of them were kind of five focused in that they really helped move us forward financially. Other ones, like I said, we lived in Europe for four and a half years, and we traveled extensively. My husband had a lot of leave going into that tour, and they, we had a lot of time off when we were there. So we traveled every month when we were there. and I took those four and a half years off. It was my first break from employment. I started working when I was you know twelve or thirteen. And I was about 25. So it was my first break in about 15 years. And it was amazing. Like, I went back to school. I did art classes and I did history classes and language classes. And I did classes all over Europe. I did traveling classes in Italy and Amsterdam and Scotland. So it was a really nice time to kind of step back from, for me, what had been kind of a grind and kind of a hustle. Like, I had just worked really hard that first half to kind of get us to this point where we were debt-free you know we had over 100,000 saved like we were on a good good path so they can each have different functions different motivations I think a lot of people coming out of the pandemic um are just burned out (laughs) they're tired like it's just been it's been kind of a grind especially if you've had kids that have been out of school and you've been like trying to work and trying to work from home and homeschooling and like figuring out childcare and all of the things. And a lot of people are just ready for a break. And especially in the FI journey, it can be important to take these mini retirements before you pull the plug for good and just experiment, experiment with what you want, you know, kind of this ideal life to look like, what you want this second chapter to look like.
2: And when you did move to Germany and you you said it had been quite a grind before that, what was your work at that point? I had done
0: all sorts of things. I think partly because it was just my, my personality. I love learning, but then I get bored pretty, pretty quickly. Um, so I had switched it up. You know, in high school, I had done everything from like work at a gas station to work at a pizza place, I waited tables, and then After we got married, I worked for Starbucks, I worked for REI, um, I worked for a church, uh, I did commission sales for like high-end mattresses and office chairs. I would kind of just taken whatever job seemed uh, interesting and challenging and new, but I had switched jobs probably every
2: two, three years. And along this journey, you've adopted four kids and had two biological kids. How have they managed school with the many retirements?
0: up until this point, school has been pretty flexible with us. You know, we did a 10 week trip with the kiddos where we visited 10 national parks all throughout the West in our pop-up camper. And I think we pulled them out of school like seven weeks early. And they were like, yeah, that's fine. Just go, pull on, enroll them, enroll them when you get back, like whatever we've done trips in the middle of the year for like 3 or 4 weeks and i think part of it is that some of my kids have some some learning disabilities and by the middle of the year they're really tired And they're really burned out. And the teachers can kind of see they're struggling. So when I'm like, yeah, I think we're going to do a long vacation. They're like, that's a fantastic idea. Just go. And I'm like, should we do some homework? No, no, just go. We'll figure it out when you get back. Um, But this year, we're going to do a 12-week trip in the middle of the school year. I haven't talked to the schools about them yet. Worst case scenario. I mean, I would love to be able to re-enroll my kids when we get back. Because we'll get back uh, in February. So they can finish out the spring. Worst case scenario, they might say, "Ah, it's too disruptive or we might not have a spot for you. And so we'll just homeschool the rest of the year and put them back in in the fall.
2: And what's the age range of your kids right now? Yeah, my youngest
0: is five and starting kindergarten. And then we've got an eight-year-old and a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old and a
2: 13-year-old. So basically kindergarten all the way through junior high. And for anyone who thinks a mini retirement sounds really appealing, but they're overwhelmed with where to start and making that happen, what advice would you have?
0: I guess it depends why you feel overwhelmed, but it's always good to just start with imagining, trying to get a sense of what would you want to do? What matters to you? Like to try to take a step back and examine like, What did you expect your life to look like at this point? Like, what are the things you really value? What are the things you would want in that ideal day? And that kind of starts to, I don't know, starts to like loosen the bolts a little bit. And I actually, I have a a free PDF, uh, Six Steps to a Mini Retirement. So if you go to my site, it's jillianjohnsrude.com slash mini, M-I-N-I. But it gives you like a 20, 30 page kind of workbook and to help you start to think through like kind of that dreaming stage and then some of the financial pieces, like how can you um, afford to take a mini retirement every decade? And once people go through it, it's like, oh, actually that's not super
2: complicated. Like... Yeah. No, I could totally do that. If someone were to have told you at age 25 or 30 that these are all the things you'd be involved with now, planning your next mini retirement, writing a book, leading one-on-one coaching, doing workshops, retreats, would this path have surprised you? I
0: wouldn't say that the work itself would have surprised me because this was always kind of my dream. Like This was the thing that if money wasn't an issue, if, if I could have anything in the world, like I would want to write books and I would want to coach and I would want to host events and, and I would want to teach. And, and that seemed so amazing and magical, but at 25, it seemed like a total pipe dream, like very unrealistic, very, well, that can never actually happen. And part of that was I had grown up, you know, we kind of lived right at the poverty line A very hardworking kind of family and just a very pragmatic family. Like, you need to get paid by Friday (laughs) because we have bills to pay by Friday. Like, you couldn't do things that were long-term or things that might not pay off. And now I kind of approach my business as in, how do I cash flow all of the work that I want to do? What do I find most exciting? What do I find most interesting? What am I most excited about? And how can I get all of these different elements of my business to basically cash flow my dreams so I can do whatever it
2: is that I really want to do creatively? And as you look back over the past 20 years, is there anything you wish you'd done differently from a financial perspective or otherwise? Like
0: everyone, I probably wish I would have started investing earlier. I was very hesitant about it. I was very nervous about it. I didn't come from an investing family. Definitely not something we talked about growing up. And it just felt risky and it felt kind of dangerous. And like a lot of people, I didn't want to mess it up. So I waited probably longer than I should have. We sat on a lot of cash for a long time because I just was a little a little hesitant. So with our kids, we start they actually all have investment accounts and they all invest. And we talk about investing all the time. My 12-year-old, we had some friends over that were visiting from out of state. And I heard him talking to his little friend in the kitchen and he goes, so do you like investing? Because I really like investing. And my kid's friend was like, no, I mean, I have a piggy bank. I I, I just... (laughs) I, I keep, I, I keep cash in it. And my son goes, oh, you should try index funds. I really like index funds. <laughs> and I was just like, so happy that they're thinking about it, but that it's not taboo, that it's something we can talk about and we can encourage each other and we can kind of demystify this process. And it can just be
2: more everyday conversation while you're doing the dishes with your friends. That's awesome. It sounds like money and investing have just become a natural topic in the household. How do you also share your values around minimalism with your kids? When
0: we stepped away from the nine to five, initially, it was just going to be a mini retirement. We're like, we'll just try it for a year. We'll see how it goes. We had never tried it with all the kids. And the numbers... I felt mostly good about, but not like 100%. Most people don't feel 100%, no matter what their numbers look like. You're kind of like, oh, like I think this will work, but we'll see. So during that first year, we decided to declutter on a massive scale. And we probably spent three or four hours every weekend for about six months. We went through all of our possessions uh, and we ended up getting rid of about 50%. And probably about 70% of the kids' toys. It had amazing benefits. Like, it's so easy to want more. But in reality, my kids were so overwhelmed and so distracted that they were kind of like little butterflies, just like floating from one thing to the next, but never really settling down, never really like focusing on one toy or one project for long periods of time, it kind of gave them like environmental ADD where they were just constantly distracted, constantly fighting over something that, you know, they saw one of the other kids out of the corner of their eye pick up and they're like, ah, I need that too. So we started kind of a three by three rule where they could pick out three toys at a time and then the work done, they would put them back on the toy shelf and they could pick out three others. And we've done that... I guess for six years now, and now it's more like a one by one. They each get to pick like one thing. And when they're done with the thing, they pick it up and put it away and they can pick out something else. It changed the whole dynamic of our relationship, honestly, because before that, it was a lot of like me being naggy and grumpy and like, please clean this up and please take care of your crap. But then just being too overwhelmed like it was too much i was asking something that they weren't capable of doing and then being frustrated when they couldn't and now they can take care of their own things they can pick up their own things they can organize their own things and so it's it's removed that whole dynamic and that whole amount of physical work that we have to do every day as a family but also the emotional work of like trying to get them to do something that they couldn't really do
2: With all that you have on your plate, how do you recharge? I'm a bath taker and a tea
0: drinker. So this morning when I was late for the interview, I was sitting out on my back deck drinking tea like a cat soaking in the sunshine. I love watering things. So I have ducks and I water them every day and I have plants and I water them and I have outside plants and inside plants. I just love watering things. But yeah, I love being outside, which is part of the reason Montana winter is hard for me because it's really long, really cold and very cloudy, especially where I live, kind of get socked in for like six months. And I'm definitely solar powered. Like I need sunshine. I need to be outside. Part of the reason we do like morning adventures or, you know, we just got back from being camping all weekend, and it was like it's finally—it was so hot here this summer. And It was like the first weekend that it was like cool, and we could have a campfire. Like fire
2: restrictions were lifted, and it was just—that's definitely how I recharge. Sounds awesome. Being so close to Glacier National Park, how many times a year would you say that your family is in the park?
0: We don't go in at all during peak season. I know they have a ticketed entry, but we go in a lot in the shoulder season. Like March, April, May, when it's snowy and icy and there's no one there and spring is just trying to peek through, we'll probably go in once a month. But in the summer during the peak season, we actually own a little piece of land, not too far from our house. And we built it out as a campsite. So we have water and septic and power and a little pad for our camper. And we park our camper there all summer. So it's kind of serves as like a little vacation house. We can just drive up and bring a bag of groceries and it's all set up for us. So it makes
2: going camping super easy. That sounds amazing. I'd love to shift gears and talk about your new book, Fire the Haters. Tell us about it.
0: I wrote this book partly because I I love creatives i love entrepreneurs i love it when people want to create something want to share something um i think i think all of us intrinsically are makers we are creators to some degree and and whether that's an idea or a custom birdhouse or a really nice dinner like we just like making things but the internet's gotten weird <laughs> Over the last 20 years. And it can be just extremely critical. And it can, I divided the book into kind of how you deal with that external criticism in the first chapter or the first section. But the second section is about how to deal with the inner critic. And those two, I see. They marry up a lot because we all have insecurities and we have doubts and we wonder if we're good enough and we we wonder if like the things that we're producing kind of match our taste and the reason we got into it. But that external criticism pushes on those insecurities and it pushes on that inner critic and it amplifies that voice. So we kind of have to resolve. Both of those, Um, because you can never really deal with trolls and haters online if you haven't made some peace about the fact that, yeah, your stuff probably isn't as good as you want it to be. It might feel a little mediocre. And the only way to get better is to just keep doing the thing um, until you've kind of resolved some of that. That external criticism will just knock you off your feet over and over.
2: And what's been your experience dealing online with some of the increasingly challenging comments, challenging individuals, challenging anonymous comments? I get all sorts of comments.
0: And when I started, part of the reason I wanted to write this book was that I find most people who... live in this space long enough, eventually we kind of figure it out. We figure out the rules, we figure out mentally how to like organize it. We kind of come to a comfortable spot, but there wasn't really a roadmap of like how to get to that point. Everyone just had to figure it out on their own. So I really wanted to create a book that kind of gathered all of the collective wisdom in one spot. Because when I started, it was just a disaster. Like I struggled in every way. I made every (laughs) mistake. Like, And I just had no sense of how to navigate this online life because it's not at all like our in-person life whatever our instinct or kind of our internal compass of how to deal with in-person reactions it's kind of the opposite of dealing with that online so if a person in real life uh, misunderstands you and kind of misinterprets something you say in a conversation you explain yourself you add more information you you, you correct the misunderstanding online you, you can't. You can't constantly fight people. You can't constantly defend yourself. You can't constantly try to make people understand who persist in misunderstanding you. Um, you have to develop just a whole different framework of this idea that it's okay if people misunderstand you. It's okay if they misinterpret. It's okay if, yeah, they decide it's not for them. And that's not in any way your job or your work to change people's opinion. They get to have whatever opinion they want to have. And so just kind of translating what our tendency to do in real life and finding a new way to operate in this online space.
2: Was the process of writing this cathartic in any way, given what you'd been through with some of this online bullying? It was fun. These are the conversations that I love having with people.
0: And the book is really just born out of hundreds of conversations of people who want to get started, who are scared about getting started and people who are in the thick of it and are like, oh my gosh, how do I deal with this? Like, this is driving me insane. And discussing kind of these frameworks and these ideas of how to think about it. And so it was the reason I picked this as the first book to write, because I knew it would just be a fun topic to dive into and to kind of explain how do we silence our inner critic? I think it's actually paying attention to what that critic is saying and what the what the actual fear is, what the actual concern is. And for a lot of people, it's that we're not good enough. What we're creating isn't good enough. We're not qualified to do it. And I think for me and in the book, a lot of it boils down to just agreeing, <laughs> with them. In an interview, someone asked me like, why were you the absolute best person to write this book? And I said, I'm not. How can I think that I'm the absolute best person to write this book? I'm sure there's a thousand people more qualified to write this book than me. We don't have to convince ourselves that we're the absolute best or we're the absolute most talented or we're the absolute most qualified uh, because it's kind of rubbish. You just start where you start and you produce the best that you can, and you get better over time. I think instead of hoping that what we produce will match our standards or our taste, or will be exceptional in every way, instead I look at it, will it be helpful? Is this a perfect book? No, probably not. Was there probably someone out there that could have written it better? Absolutely. Is it a helpful book though? Yeah, it's going to be really helpful to a lot of people. And I think that has to be our target. And that helps silence the critic because we're not trying to delude ourselves. But compared to, to basketball, if you've never played basketball, if you've never touched a ball, you can't sit on your couch and convince yourself that you're the best at this and that you're the most qualified and that you'll like, be the star you've just never done it. And confidence and clarity come in doing. And so if anyone has fear or doubt, like, I don't know if it'll work out. I don't know if I'll be the best. Like, what will people think? I would just start. And in the doing, you'll develop the confidence. You'll understand what you can do and you'll understand how well you can do it. And you'll develop clarity of like what exactly you should be doing. You can't figure all of this out, like while you're still sitting on your couch.
2: Another theme that you bring up in the book is this sort of blurring of boundaries of our work and our personal self. And I was wondering, what advice do you have for those who are deeply committed to their work on how to really untangle the work from the individual?
0: Yeah, it's so difficult, especially for those of us that our work is created in our mind. It's born out of our creativity, out of our perspective, out of our taste, out of our personality, out of our story. And and we pull all these things together to create something. And it's so easy for that something to feel like us, to feel like the miniature version of us or like an extra appendage on our body. And so when the internet attacks that work, we very personally feel attacked because it feels very personal because it feels like that's us. That's a little part of us that they're attacking. And that's just a really unhelpful framework. For a creative life, like I wish that we could operate in that space, and I wish that worked. It just doesn't. Like you'll become neurotic and depressed and angry and and a mess. So we have to come up with a different framework, a different way of looking at it. And I think about my work as its own persona, as its own person. You know, sometimes we think about our work like our babies our children. And if we're going to go down that road, I think about my work as a grown child, like a 30-year-old child. And it's out there living its own life. It's doing its own work and it's having its own interactions. And it's not really any of my business. And whether it's successful, you know, I desire it to be successful, just like I want my kids to be successful, but I don't convolute that their success is my success. If my kid wins an Oscar like I'm not going to storm the stage and take it from him like I'm happy that they won that but I didn't. And so I think about my work as its own entity as it, as a full grown adult that's out there in the world it's hopefully making a ruckus it's hopefully doing some good but for better or worse I don't confuse that with myself. With this book I hope it's incredibly helpful. I hope it goes out and it has lots of amazing interactions with other people, but I'm not actually the one having interactions with other people. I'm at home in Montana. I'm drinking a cup of tea. I'm living my life. My book is out there doing its own thing separate from me. It has a life separate from me it's tough because oftentimes the audience wants to confuse the creator with the created thing you know the person who created the idea with that person you know the actor with the role the artist with the song it's it's easy because they really want them to be one and the same um and so sometimes people will come up to me like oh my god like you changed my life yeah that wasn't actually me i created a piece of work And I'm so happy that you interacted with that piece of work and that that helped you change your life. But I wasn't there. That was my work, my work success. (laughs) Sometimes my work's failure. It all lives separately from me. And that's a framework that can keep us sane and productive and working and healthy. You know, I'm going to have a little graduation party for my book, but just like graduation, you say, good luck, kid. You're out on your own now. I hope you do great things. But like, you don't live with
2: me anymore.
0: You got to be your own person.
2: Given the timing of writing your book during the pandemic, did that help accelerate your writing process that, you know, part of the year we were in lockdown or there were fewer things going on?
0: Uh, yes and no. I mean, it was impossibly hard with five kids at home. They couldn't leave home. Like they couldn't, we couldn't go to the park. We couldn't go to the library. Um, We were just kind of on top of each other. And I was stressed and anxious and distracted like so many people because there was so much happening in 2020. But on the flip side, I wasn't traveling. I wasn't speaking. I wasn't going to events. Um, So it gave my schedule some consistency, which was helpful. It was kind of the, the replacement. You know, I had planned all of these things for 2020. And when all of them were canceled, I was like, okay, so maybe I'll write a book instead. And it was like the one little bastion of like hope and light and encouragement. Like the whole rest of the year might feel a little bit like a
2: dumpster fire, but I'll come out of it with a book. If we were to fast forward to 2025, where would we find you and what might you be doing? Hopefully
0: it, It looks fairly similar to my life right now. I feel like we're in a pretty good rhythm. I do want to keep writing. I would love to write a book a year. Um, You know, some people finish the book writing process and they're like, well, that was a bear. (laughs) Never doing that again. And I finished it and I was like, well, that was a bear. I think I want to get started on the next one. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I really, I really like the process and it fits my personality really well. I'm a super introvert, so... For me, just sitting alone in my office and typing and living inside my head is a very comfortable, nice way for me to to spend an hour a day. So yeah, hopefully we figured out this whole leaving Montana in the winter thing. This is kind of like our first big experiment. And I could possibly see us doing a big trip every, every winter or either to different places or maybe buying a place, someplace warm and sunny doing a little snowbird, even though we're not
2: 70. Are there any podcasts that you listen to regularly? No, I don't, which is so bad for a podcaster.
0: But part of it has been the kids being home. My life is so noisy. So many people are talking at me all day long. And so, whenever I have a moment of silence, I just—it's like—it's like I lap it up. I just drink it through a straw. <laughs> just the pure quietness. So uh, we are getting back to the gym, though. So maybe
2: it's noisy there. I might as well listen to a podcast. Do you have any spare moments to read, and and do you have any book titles that you might recommend for listeners
0: on the writing and creativity side? I like Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic on creativity, on writing, Anne Lamont wrote Bird by Bird, which is very good. Stephen King's On Writing is fantastic. My current read, I'm reading a book about the Enneagram, which has been incredibly helpful. It's something I've been studying for the last year, and I've always been interested in personality profiles But I feel like this one has been exceptionally helpful for me to be more empathetic and more understanding of how other people think and feel and kind of the framework
2: that they view the world through. Awesome. Well, we will definitely include those titles in the show notes and listeners can find those at northstarsleepschool.com forward slash podcast. And for listeners, definitely check out Jillian and all of her great work through her website. And I'll spell that out. It's J I L L I A N J O H N S R U D dot com. Jillian, thanks so much for being on the show today. It's been really great to chat with you. Thanks so much for having me. And for listeners, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for subscribing to the podcast, for writing a review on Apple Podcasts, and for sharing this episode with a friend. And also happy one-year anniversary to North Star Unplugged. Take care, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the
1: North Star Unplugged podcast. The audio version can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you like North Star Unplugged, please subscribe and leave a review on one of those channels. Finally, all prior episodes are also on the North Star Sleep School website at northstarsleepschool.com, which offers an e-newsletter you can sign up for.